You're listening to Isaiah, a sermon series from Coram Deo Church in Omaha, Nebraska. For more resources, visit cdomaha.com. Our reading is from Isaiah 28. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters he casts down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge? To whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast... For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear, and the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. And with Sheol we have made an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation stone in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass through by day and by night. And it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to, th to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon. He will be roused to do his deed, strange is his deed, and to do his work, alien is his work. Now therefore do not scoff, 
lest your, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat in rows and barley in its proper place, and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. This is the word of God. Well, good morning, church. Glad to have you here. Uh, I always love College World Series time because occasionally there's folks from out of town who are joining us on Sunday for worship. And so if that's you this morning, glad you're here. Uh, we're in the midst of study through the book of Isaiah, and we're in chapter 28 this morning. This is a large book. We're spending all of this year studying it together, and so that's where we are. And if you're just catching us in the middle of it, here we go, all right? Here's a question I want to put before you this morning. Um, what does God want from you? At some level, that question is present in you this morning. In fact, it's probably part of the reason why you would be here. B- because there's something in you that wants to know, what does God want of me? What does God require of me? If there is a God, what does he, what does he want? The Bible answers that question very simply over and over and over again. It sort of gives the same answer The same basic answer to the question, what does God want from me? That answer is quite simply this, trust and obey. That's what God says to people, trust and obey. And and in fact, both of those together and in that order, right? So, So it's important as we say that. God is not interested in an obedience that is sort of slavish and driven out of fear, but not rooted in a trust in him. Nor is God interested in a a professed trust in him that does not issue forth in a life of discipleship. Rather, what God wants is trust and obedience, a trust that leads to obedience and an obedience that is rooted in trust. He wants us to trust and obey. You, you probably can see this as you think about parts of the Bible that you're familiar with. You recognize, and there's places in the Bible where God is really sort of calling us to trust in him and worship him. And there's parts of the Bible that seem like God's very concerned about obedience and how we live in the world. This is the answer that God gives, the basic call that God makes to humanity throughout redemptive history. So think about the Garden of Eden. God comes to Adam and Eve, and really what he says to them is, Trust and obey. Trust, believe that I, as your creator, love you. I'm out for your good. I know what's best for you. Don't eat of this tree. God comes to Noah and he says to Noah, trust and obey. Believe, trust that my judgment is coming on the world and build this ark. 
God comes to Abram and he says, Abram, leave your country and your father's house and go to a land I will show you. Abram, trust and obey. God comes to Moses and says, Moses, my people are in slavery in Egypt. I've heard their cries. Here's what I want you to do, Moses. Trust and obey. Believe that I want to use you, yes, you, to deliver my people from slavery. And then go. Speak to Pharaoh. Say what I give you to say. God comes to Joshua and to the people of God as they wait to enter the promised land. And what he says to them is, trust and obey. Believe that I'm fulfilling the promise I made to Abraham to give you this land and now obey, enter in, follow my directions, live according to my law. God comes to David and says, David, I'm establishing you as king over my people. Here's what I want you to do. Trust and obey. Rest in my promise that I'm making to you. Take hold of this covenant that I'm making with you and then lead my people in obedience and diligence. Throughout all of redemptive history, what God keeps saying to his people is trust and obey. This is what God wants. And yet, what do we see as we read the Bible? We see a people who consistently, persistently fail to trust and obey, right? The Bible is a story of a God who continues to say to people, trust and obey, and of people who continue to fail to trust God and obey. And this is not just the story of the Bible. This is your story, isn't it? This is my story. This is our story. Is it not true that that you know deep down inside that, that, that what God wants from you is that you would trust and obey him? And you also know that you consistently and persistently fail to do that. You know that your life with God is a story of half-hearted trust and flagging obedience. This morning, Isaiah has some bad news for you and some good news for you. So I want to dive right into Isaiah chapter 28. Let's see what God has to say to us through the prophet Isaiah this morning. Isaiah 28, verse 1. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. So let's set a little context here. Remember, under David's grandsons, the kingdom of Israel, the promised land, has fragmented into two kingdoms. So there's Israel in the north and Judah in the south. There's, civil war. there's been civil war between them. They're sort of estranged siblings, right? And Isaiah is ministering in the south in Jerusalem and Judah. And he looks to the north. He looks to Ephraim. He looks to Israel. And what he sees marking God's people in the north is pride and drunkenness. Trust and obedience, not so much. God's people who are supposed to display his glory and reveal his goodness are instead glorying in themselves and indulging their appetites. And isn't this exactly the way things go? For those of us who are made to find our satisfaction and our fulfillment in God, when we do not find God satisfying, when God is not our fulfillment, 
what always happens is that we look to other things to satisfy us. And there's always two places we look, either within ourselves, self-love, self-worship, self-exaltation, or outside ourselves at the world around us, indulging our appetites, taking hold of what there is to fill us up and make us happy. So Isaiah looks at the north, he sees pride, self-will, and drunkenness. He sees the people of God finding their satisfaction in everything else besides God. And so he says, verse 2, Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong. Isaiah is speaking here of the king of Assyria, this foreign hostile power that God is going to use as an instrument of his judgment on his own people. And Isaiah says, the Lord has one, the king of Assyria, who is mighty and strong. Like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he casts down to the earth with his hand the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. God's going to bring the king of Assyria against the people of Israel and the proud crown of Ephraim is going to be trodden underfoot. All that they glory in and find satisfying is going to get destroyed. It's going to waste away. Verse 5. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. In that day, when the king of Assyria comes, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory to the remnant of his people. Remember, Isaiah always sees within the people of God two peoples, right? There's the unfaithful people of God who abandon and turn from God. And there's the remnant who, when God brings judgment and when God calls them to repentance, respond in humility. And Isaiah says, when the king of Assyria comes, what's going to happen for the people who have their eyes open, who are spiritually sensitive, is that they're going to return to the Lord of hosts. God's going to be their crown of glory. This is what God wants from us. God wants to be our crown of glory. He wants to be the thing that satisfies you and that fulfills you and that beautifies you. Now, Isaiah has sort of set the stage here because remember, there's a little sibling rivalry between south and north. There's a little competition between these two peoples. And remember, Isaiah is speaking to Jerusalem, to the southern kingdom. So, so he's just said, here's what I see as I look up north at the land of Israel. I see these people consumed with pride and drunkenness. God's bringing his judgment against them. And, and he's expecting that his audience would be going, yeah, I can see that. See how they deserve that. I mean, right? What's God going to do? They're nodding in affirmation. They're approving, perhaps, of this word of judgment that he has to speak. And then what he does in verse 7 is he wheels around and he pulls and sets the hook that he's just baited. Look at verse 7. These also, speaking of his own people in Jerusalem, reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. 
How's that for an image? How's that one sit with you? Isaiah wants you to see that. He wants you to smell that. He wants you to be disgusted by the image he's using. He wants the full weight of what he's saying to be felt. Oh, you think it's bad in the north? Let's talk about you, Jerusalem. Let's talk about your drunkenness and your debauchery and your sin and your selfishness. Let's talk about the puke fest at the end of your parties. Verse 9 begins with quotation marks because this is now what the people in Jerusalem are saying to Isaiah. To whom will he, Isaiah, teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk? Those taken from the breast? Now, this is unfortunate. In verse 10, what the English translators chose to do here was actually to translate the Hebrew, which was a bad decision because it's not meant to be translated. Here's what this verse says in Hebrew. Sav la sav, sav la sav, kav la kav, kav la kav. It, it's, it's baby talk. It's the babbling of what a little toddler would say in Hebrew. It's like an English baby saying da, da, da. What they're, what they're doing is they're mocking the message that Isaiah is preaching. They're saying, hey, Isaiah, who, who are you talking to? Who's this message? Is it for the babies? Is it for the toddlers? This is simplistic. It's not sophisticated. This word of trust and obey, Isaiah, this is elementary. This is kid stuff. When do we get to move on to theology 101? When do we do some high-level thought work, Isaiah? Maybe you should go teach kids ministry. That's kind of the ministry you're probably suited for. Go teach the babies. So in an ironic reversal, God's going to take this mockery God's going to take the way that they're mocking Isaiah and he's going to turn it around on them. Look at verses 11 through 13. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people. To whom he has said, this is rest. Give rest to the weary. This is repose. Yet they would not hear. See, God has said, I have spoken to you. Here's what I've invited you to. Rest, repose, trust in me, rest in me. But see, that's a word you haven't been willing to hear. So now I'm going to speak to you. My word to you is from a people of strange lips and a foreign tongue, the people of Assyria. Verse 13 and the word of the Lord will be to them, sav la sav, kav la kav. When the Assyrians come, it's going to sound to you like blah, 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 because you don't understand their language, but that's my word to you. Since you've rejected my word, my word to you is the babbling foreign language of the Assyrian invaders. Here's what we've seen so far in this chapter. God's people in the north, the proud drunkards of Ephraim, have refused to trust and obey him. God's people in the south, the partying scoffers of Judah, have refused to trust and obey him. 
there are two ways for us to respond, right? One is those idiots. And the other is, gosh, we're a lot like them. Which way you respond says a lot about the state of your heart before God. These things are written down for our instruction, says the Apostle Paul. We are not much different from them, are we? But you see, our lack of trust in God is very sophisticated. It's highly nuanced. It's never just a bare rejection of God's promises. Rather, it's sort of a calculated, nuanced, sophisticated avoidance of God. Here's what lack of trust looked like for Judah, for Isaiah's original audience. Remember, we've talked about this before. What was the primary threat in their day? was the the rise of Assyria, the Assyrian Empire, which was strong, it was mighty, it was pagan, and it was out to dominate and take over the ancient Near East. God had said to his people, hey, Assyria, that's a paper tiger. Don't worry about them. You trust me. I'll protect you. I'll be your refuge. They're not going to bother you. But what the people of Judah had done instead... Or perhaps we might say, in addition, was they said, well, God, thanks for that promise. That's good to know kind of as a plan B. But of course, we're, we're enlightened, sophisticated political folks. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to form an alliance with Egypt. After all, this is what you do, right? This is how diplomacy works. There's a hostile power over here. There's a, another kingdom over here. We're going to sort of form an alliance, a mutual pact of defense against the Assyrians. So God, we'll still kind of believe your promises as a backup plan. But plan A is the alliance with, with Egypt. See, their, their disbelief wasn't just a rejection of God. It was a subtle and calculated avoidance of the promises of God. And we do the same thing, don't we? Our avoidance, our lack of trust in God is never a bare rejection of him. It's much more sophisticated. And so what I want to do for a minute is I want to, I want to sort of try to help you enter into what your unbelief, what your lack of trust in God looks like. Let me ask two questions. What is it that threatens me? Where do I turn for safety, refuge, and rest? These are the two questions of the text. In fact, this is the language of the text. It's language of rest, repose, refuge, shelter. So what is it that threatens you? And where do you turn for safety or for refuge or for rest? There are a thousand answers to these questions. And everyone will be perhaps particular to who you are and to your story. Let me give some categories. Let me give a few answers that may pertain to a few of you. What is it that threatens you? Maybe what threatens some of you is stress. What you hate to feel the most is stress. You hate to feel like there's a lot to get done and not much time to do it and a lot of people counting on you and the press and the urgency of all the things you have to do. That's what threatens your peace and security in life. 
so you will build yourself a refuge of entertainment, leisure, me time. What, what threatens me is stress, and so what I need is a refuge. I need, I need margin. I need rest. I need time for just me where no one can interfere in this and no one can demand anything of me. This is my time. And so suddenly what your life gets divided into is stress and demands that other people place upon you, and then your rest, your me time, your leisure, and then after that's fulfilled, if there's time left over, maybe you'll be part of a gospel community. Maybe you'll be involved in serving the poor. Maybe you'll be engaged in some ways in God's mission in the city. So so God's already been relegated to the third category of your life, but not in a calculated way. In fact, we don't even think about it. These are just sort of the natural ways we talk. Maybe for some of you, what threatens you is loneliness. What you want to deeply avoid is the feeling of being alone. And so you will be tempted to build yourself a refuge in a relationship. Even an unhealthy one. Because after all, that's better than being alone. It it saves you from the pain of Loneliness, and after all, since that's the threatening thing, I'll take companionship. I'll take someone to call, even if it's an unhealthy relationship, one that might not be best for me. For some of you, what threatens you perhaps is commitment. You hate having to commit to things. You like to keep your options open and be spontaneous and and commitment, being accountable for things, being responsible for things feels to you like a threat, something you want to avoid. And so you will build yourself a refuge in autonomy, keeping my options open, making sure not to commit to everything. I will save myself from the threat of commitment by making sure I never commit to anything. By maintaining a life that's completely open, that has no responsibility. And I'll blame it on my Myers-Briggs type, because after all, I'm spontaneous. It's how I am. I don't like to be constrained and constricted by choices. For some of you, perhaps, what threatens you is anxiety about the future. You can sense the nagging unrest, the the gripping presence of anxiety about the unknown and the uncertainty of the future. And so you will be tempted to build yourself a refuge in medication. Not dealing with the more foundational lack of trust that drives your anxiety, you will settle for merely something to deal with the symptoms of anxiety because after all, that's better than being anxious. But can't you see that's a surface-level salvation, a surface-level deliverance that doesn't get down to the root of what really causes those feelings? What is it that threatens you? Where do you turn for safety, refuge, rest? The answers I've given are only the tip of the iceberg. There may be dozens of others that pertain to you. For the people of Judah, the threat was Assyria. 
And where they turned for refuge was not to the God who made them and who made promises to them, but to Egypt, a more present, a more tangible, a more visceral Savior. So God has said to his people, trust me. I will be your refuge. I will deliver you. I will take care of you. God's people have repeatedly said, thanks, but no thanks. God, we are not going to trust you. We will build our own refuge. So here's the question the text presents us with. What does God do with a people who refuse to trust him and obey? What does God do with people who fail to trust him and fail to obey? Because after all, this is the people he has, right? This is the people of Israel and the people of Judah. And let's be honest, this is the people of Coram Deo. What does God do with a people who refuse to trust and obey? Here's the answer the text gives. God exposes their false refuge and then builds them a better one. What God does with our failure to trust and obey is he exposes our false refuge, our false hopes, our false saviors, and he builds us a better refuge. Look at Isaiah 28, verse 14. Therefore, in conclusion, in summary, so so here's what Isaiah has shown us. The people of the north don't trust and obey. The people of the south don't trust and obey. Therefore, hear The word of the Lord. Do you hear the grace of that statement? Do you realize how good it is of God that when we fail, he continues to pursue us with his word. He continues to send prophets and apostles and preachers and Christian friends and pastors to remind us of his word. Hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. And with Sheol, we have made an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. By the way, this is one of the beauties of uh, the text of Isaiah, is that he packs it with these really rich metaphors that we can't ever actually talk about, but they're so awesome. So like this metaphor, the overwhelming whip It's an image of drowning and getting whipped at the same time. So it's like Isaiah saying, hey, would drowning be fun? Imagine drowning and getting whipped while you're drowning. That's kind of what this is like. It just uses these dense metaphors. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Now, of course, this isn't what they would say. They would have said, They wouldn't say we're taking refuge in lies. We've made an agreement with death. They're saying we've made an agreement with Egypt and it's a wise and courageous and politically astute thing to do. What God is doing here is he's unveiling for them. He's revealing for them the folly of what they're trusting in. He's saying, oh, I know you think this is brilliant. Here's what it is. It's a refuge of lies. It's a shelter of falsehood. You've made a covenant with the grave. That's what you've done. 
He's exposing the lack of power that this has to actually deliver them and save them and complete them and fulfill them. He exposes their false refuge, but then he builds them a better one. Look at verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Whoever believes will not be frantic, frenzied, anxious, hurried. If you build your life on this foundation, if you rest on this cornerstone, you'll be safe, secure, sound, solid, unmoved. You guys have all done this, haven't you? Played with blocks when you were a kid. Then you grew up and you started playing with Legos. Then maybe you grew up and went into construction. Some of you guys do this for a living. You build stuff. And you, and you know how this works, right? The better the foundation, the taller it goes. But the worse the foundation, the harder it falls. God's saying to his people, listen, the foundation that you're building on, the thing that you're counting on and banking on, it's going to get swept away. I'm building you a better foundation. That cornerstone goes, the whole thing falls. And what God's saying is, that's what you're building. You're you're building something that can't sustain the weight that you're putting on it. It can't bear up under what you're expecting it to do. So why not build on the foundation I'm laying, a sure foundation, a tested stone, one that is rock solid and secure? What is this foundation that the Lord is laying in Zion? This is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Got to get my table back. God has been telling his people for all of history, trust and obey, trust and obey, trust and obey. And for all of redemptive history, God's people have consistently failed to trust and obey. Our record when it comes to trust and obedience is a record of failure. That's what we have to offer. And so what we need is one who can and will trust and obey in our place. And somehow that person's trust and obedience can get credited to us. If our hope is in our trust and obedience, if our hope is in the people of God's ability to trust and obey, we have no hope. So what we need is one who's better than us, who's more obedient than us and more trusting than us, who somehow gets their obedience and trust transferred, credited to us. Here's, here's a really poor but helpful analogy. Think about the Olympics. We are the United States of America. We need someone who can win the 100-meter dash and the breaststroke and the grand slalom. Okay? Can you, can you do that? Anyone in here want to volunteer? I mean, maybe some of you guys are great swimmers, but probably not the best in the world, right? So, so what do we do? We find one who represents us. We find one who can accomplish those feats. And we are represented by that one. 
and that person goes and competes and wins victory and glory. And then what happens is their victory is credited to us. We are caught up in, we are represented by their victory, right? They won the gold medal, therefore the United States did. Even though you weren't there and did nothing. But you got the gold medal and you watched the Olympics and go, yes, we won. In some poor and faltering way, that's an analogy of representative salvation. It's a picture of what Isaiah is teaching us. You can't trust and obey, but there's one who can. There's one who did in your place as your representative. And now, by being united with him, by coming under his flag, by becoming a citizen of his country, his victory is credited to you. You get all the benefits of his triumph. If you have a Bible, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. I want you to see that Isaiah 28 is one of the most important texts in the entire Bible. This truth that Isaiah is teaching, that Jesus is the cornerstone, is one of the most important truths in the entire Bible. And Peter, writing hundreds of years later in redemptive history, is going to now draw and connect all the dots for us. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him a living stone. So realize this stone, this rock, this foundation stone that Isaiah has talked about has now become a him, third person, personal pronoun. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, quoting Isaiah 28, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Isaiah says, you remember, or, or Peter says, you remember what Isaiah said back in his book that he wrote? Remember he talked about God laying in Zion a stone? That stone is a hymn. It's the Lord Jesus Christ, a living stone who was rejected by men, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. And and here's what's going on. If you come to him, you too are like a living stone that gets built up together with him into this house, into this place, this dwelling, this even to use last year or last week's metaphor into the city of God. Jesus is the foundation, the cornerstone. Those who are united with Jesus by faith are built up together into this spiritual house in order to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, here's what makes your trust and your obedience acceptable to God. It's Jesus. 
apart from Jesus, your best efforts at trust and obedience do nothing. But because now you're caught up in what Jesus is doing and you're grafted into him and you're a part of his people, now your spiritual sacrifices, your offerings of trust and obedience are acceptable to God. Why? Because they're built through and in and in union with Jesus Christ. Peter says, this is what Isaiah was talking about. If you guys just read Isaiah, you would know this already. That's kind of how the New Testament writers write. They just go, oh yeah, this is already there. Just got to read it. See, if you understand this, you understand the story of the whole Bible and of all of redemptive history. If you get what what Isaiah is saying here and what Peter is saying here, you, you see how the whole Bible fits together, right? Your Bible is divided into Old Testament and New Testament. You know this, right? There's, there's two parts. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the dividing line is the life, the coming, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The Old Testament looks forward to the coming of Christ. The New Testament looks back on the coming of Christ. And the coming of Christ is really sort of the climactic point in the story. So we have to recognize as we read the book of Isaiah that we're reading at a period in the story where we have the benefit of hindsight and we can see back and go, oh yeah, that's what was going on there. We see through the the whole picture, but that the people in Isaiah's day didn't have the fullness of the picture that we have. So, So what's happening here is God is progressively revealing his plan of how he's going to redeem and restore what's wrong with the world. The Old Testament is a record of God's people trying to trust and obey. And what you're supposed to, what's supposed to happen for you is you start reading the Bible and reading the record of God's people trying to trust and obey. You're supposed to start to go, man, this isn't going very well for them. Right? Like I'm reading Genesis. I'm reading about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're some jacked up people. Right? And then I get to Exodus and bunch of complainers, whiners, want to go back to Egypt. Then you got Moses. He's a murderer. I don't know what his deal is, right? You, you start getting into the judges and everything's going chaotic. Then you get to the kings and you read king after king after king, who's the worst possible leader you could ever imagine, right? Like not even in the best telling of history, is this a good person? You're just like, hold on. I thought this was supposed to be a book of like inspiring stories of faith. Where are those? Because what I see is a story of God's people consistently failing in their attempts to trust and obey him in massive and colossal ways. What God's doing in the progress of revelation as he writes the Old Testament is he's setting the stage for the good news that God is not building his kingdom on your ability to trust and obey. That's the good news of the gospel. God is not building his kingdom on your ability to trust and obey. He has a better foundation on which he is building his kingdom. It's the foundation, the cornerstone of the Lord Jesus Christ and his trust and obedience in our place that we get brought into when we're united with Jesus by faith. So essentially there are two ways of relating to God. These are the two ways you see all throughout the Bible. They're the two ways that are present in the human heart. One is I'll try harder to trust and obey. It's the way of example. It's the way of imitation. It's the way of, well, Abraham couldn't do it and Moses couldn't do it and David couldn't do it and Israel couldn't do it and Judah couldn't do it, but I'll try really hard to do it. 
I'll try to trust and obey. I'll try to do what God asks. I'll try to be the person God wants me to be. I'll try to better myself and be the faithful, obedient, trusting person that God asks me to be. That's one way of trying to relate to God. The other way is the way of faith. I'll choose to rest in the one who has trusted and obeyed perfectly on my behalf. I'll choose to build my life on the foundation of Jesus Christ. In him, I will trust. And in him, my trust and my obedience will be perfected. My trust and my obedience will be strengthened. In him, all of my lack is filled up. In him, all of my faulty and flagging obedience is forgiven and sustained. So here's the difference. When I try to relate to God in in the category of I'll try harder to trust and obey, I'll be the person that hasn't existed in history yet. I'll be the good, trusting, obedient follower of God. Here's what happens. What's present in my relationship with God is always tremendous insecurity, fear, and despair. Do you know why? Because I'm a bad person to trust in. If my hope is in my trust and my obedience, here's the problem. I know myself, and I know that even on my best day, I'm not trusting and obeying God as well as I should be or could be. So when I'm hoping in my trust and my obedience, I'm always going to be despairing, defeated, discouraged, unhopeful, and lacking joy. Describe any of you? Just, I'm just checking. I'm sorry, that was just, I was just checking. Just asking. This is what Isaiah wants us to ask, right? What marks your life? Is it joy, freedom, hope, excitement, worship, or is it despair, discouragement, frustration? If it's the former, you're trusting in the wrong thing. And it's probably that you're trusting in your capacity to trust and obey God better. But see, when I, when I rest in the cornerstone, when I build my life on the sure foundation of Jesus' trust and obedience in my place, on my behalf, what happens is I'm filled with freedom and hope and joy. Do you know why? Because even on my worst day, Jesus is my hope. Even when I fail, Jesus has succeeded in my place. Even when I'm disobedient, Jesus has been obedient in my place. Even when I lack trust in God, Jesus has trusted him perfectly. And so Jesus is always the one who fills up what I lack. And listen, what that creates in me then is a freedom and a joy to trust and obey. Because I'm not defeated by my trust and obedience. I'm encouraged by, you know what? I I didn't trust very well today or obey very well today, but I see progress. Better than maybe a year ago or a month ago, I see the hope that Jesus is changing me. He sent his Holy Spirit to live in me. He's making me into a different kind of person. There's new hope and new life that's being birthed in my soul as a result of my union with Jesus So trust in Christ brings more faith and obedience and trust in self brings less faith and obedience. And that's what Isaiah wants you to see. Our hope is Jesus. Look, you're going to build your life on something. You're going to build your relationship with God on something. You're going to build your way of relating to God on something. Isaiah says, 
There's only one thing to build it on. There's only one thing worth building it on. You know what it is? I've laid in Zion a precious cornerstone, and whoever believes in him will not be in haste. Won't be frantic, won't be frenzied, won't be anxious, won't be hurried, but will be resting, trusting, and free. This is the good news of the gospel message. This is the good news Isaiah has to preach to us this morning. This is the good news he wants us to receive and embrace and delight in. Let's pray together. God, we affirm that you are right to demand that we trust and obey because you are worthy of our trust and worthy of our obedience. We also acknowledge that we have failed to trust and obey in ways that please you and are faithful to who you are. Not only have we failed, but your people throughout history have failed. Our record as your people is one of failure. And so we thank you this morning that our hope is not in us, but that our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who trusted and obeyed in our place. And thank you that you established him as a foundation, a cornerstone upon which you are building your city, your church, your house. And so what we want this morning is we want to be found in Christ. We want to come to him as Peter invites us to do. I pray this morning that you would beckon us and bring us to Jesus in trust, in rest. Help us believe your word. In this is rest. In this is repose. Come here and find refuge. Cause us this morning, Father, run to Jesus and find refuge. Pray for those here who are trying to build a life with you on their own obedience and their own trust. And I pray this morning that you would reveal what a refuge of lies that is. That in dismantling that false refuge, you'd show them that you've built a much better one. And that rather than despairing at the collapse of that faulty shelter, they this morning would find themselves embracing, resting in the cornerstone the one sure foundation, the Lord Jesus Christ. We want you to build us into the kind of house that Peter envisions, a spiritual dwelling where you are welcome and where our sacrifices and our obedience to you through Jesus are acceptable. Make us that kind of a people. Make us what we cannot be on our own through Jesus for your glory. Amen.